Hi, it's Brendan here with a really exciting announcement. The fearless Julia Hartley Brewer will be joining me for a special live recording of my podcast on Wednesday, the 22nd of September. Julia and I will be live on Zoom talking about lockdown authoritarianism, woke extremism, and all the other ways in which the world has gone mad. You really don't want to miss this. Spike supporters can get in for free. If you're a Spike supporter, you can claim your ticket now from the supporters hub. If you're not yet a Spike supporter, then sign up today. You'll get free access to this event, plus loads of other exciting perks. Tickets will go on general sale next week if there are any left, but Spike supporters always get first dibs. So become a Spike supporter now to get your ticket before they're all gone. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. And I hope to see you at the live event. The way we're dealing with the pandemic, with COVID and the kind of quick lockdown and whatnot, that would have been unthinkable if it had happened in 1999, if it had happened before we had gotten used to this idea in the name of terror, in the name of these really random small probability events. You know, 9-11 in 2001, like nobody in America statistically was actually killed by terrorism, but we we're going to reorient our entire society to prevent any act of terrorism on American soil. Hello and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Nick Gillespie. Nick is one of America's best known libertarian thinkers. He is editor at large of Reason magazine and host of the Reason interview. Nick has featured on the Daily Beast top 25 journalists on the right. He has written extensively for years on issues to do with freedom and choice, and his writing is always thought-provoking. He is also the author, with Matt Welsh, of The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. So, Nick, the first thing I want to ask you about is um, your president. Well, I don't know if he is your <laughs> Maybe he's not my president in your case. People seem to yeah. pick and choose their presidents these days. Um but I want to ask you about President Joe Biden, because when Biden and Harris were elected, there was so much discussion about the return of the adults. Here come the adults back in the room to take control after four years of mayhem and chaos and pandemonium under the big orange child that is Donald Trump. Um, it doesn't seem to an outside observer like me, I'm not allowed into the US at the moment, pretty much, but to an outside observer like me, it doesn't quite seem to have worked out like that, particularly when you think about the Afghanistan situation and a few other, which I know is not solely Joe Biden's fault, uh, and a few other situations as well. So was it just a myth that Biden and Harris were the adults? Should we expect more chaos under them? How, how are things going in your view? Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a great question. And there was all these memes at the beginning of the year about how, you know, finally 2020 was over and 2021 was going to be a different year. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's different and it's as bad or worse in, in significant ways. So, um, you know, it's, it, one of, one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, in politics in general, and especially in America, which kind of makes sense given a cult of, uh, individualism here is the idea that who the fucking president is like dictates much of anything. 
Um, and the fact of the matter is, yeah. is that Donald Trump, you know, was problematic for any number of reasons that I'm happy to get into. I did not care for Donald Trump, but I also don't think he, you know, he was not, uh, you know, the end of something. He was or the beginning of something. He's the product of a, of a form of electoral, cultural, political, even economic chaos in America. And just as he was the product of that, so is Joe Biden in many significant ways. And and in a, it's deeper, actually, with Biden, I think, because Trump was at least insurgent. Trump was, um, you know, like in Monty Python's Life of Brian, there's that scene where you know, Brian is about he's being chased by Roman centurions and he falls off a tower and then out of nowhere and, you know, a, a spaceship comes by and he lands <laughs> on it and he gets taken to safety when it crashes. Yeah. Trump was kind of like that spaceship. That was just like a total wild card. But it didn't <laughs> you know, it didn't change anything. And then we come back to somebody like Biden, who has been, you know, in power for over 50 years. He is in a way he mm. is the you know, the accumulated detritus of 50 years of terrible American governance. Um, and as a result, you know, everything that is wrong with the American political system is baked into Joe Biden, um, you know, more more than Donald Trump. Um, and so when you get down to it, uh, this is like just as with Trump, Trump was not all bad and he was not certainly not all good. Biden is not all bad and good. And I think you see that in the Afghanistan situation. The most important thing, I think, from a libertarian perspective and from a limited government perspective is that Joe Biden actually got us out of Afghanistan. We shouldn't have been in there the way that we were for probably 18 of the past 20 years, uh, maybe more. And even in that, you know, so it's good that he got out. He completely fucked up the withdrawal. Um, and hopefully, you know, they'll salvage as much as possible, as many people as possible, but it's screwed up. But even there, he is essentially following Donald Trump's lead. I mean, this is one of the things in America, you know, just as, as a, as a general rule of thumb, we want to believe, and I do that as, as a libertarian, as an individualist, ultimately, as an existentialist, I believe that, um, you know, individuals matter and that, you know, we, we wake up every morning and we have, you know, the choice of suicide or not. And then everything kind of proliferates from that. But systems matter. And the system in the U.S., the way it is constituted, the way political power is constituted, and it's been devolving over the past 20 years at least, it's not going to be that much of a change when, you know, just because you take a 70, you know, I don't know, a 77 or a 78 year old and replace them with an 80 year old. Like that's not, that's not a change in direction. (laughs) That's not a, that's not a radical change. No, I completely agree. I think the, um, the Afghanistan stuff is interesting to me. Firstly, I, I, I my view is very similar to yours. I don't think that uh, Western forces should have been yeah. there to begin with. I think the idea that the peasants of Tora Bora had any responsibility for what happened yeah. in New York and Washington on the 11th of September is a complete fantasy. You know, this uh, this act of apocalyptic barbarism was primarily supported by Saudis yeah. and planned in Hamburg in Germany. You might as well have bombed Hamburg rather than bombing. Um, you know, the allies did bomb Hamburg in World War right. II <laughs> and in a more destructive raid, you know, in a yes. raid that was every bit as destructive as what we did yeah. to Tokyo and Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That's so. right. And we don't want to get back to yeah. that just yet. <laughs> um, but the, but so, uh, so I agree with you on, on, on that question. Yeah. And, but what I think is very interesting about the withdrawal process. So, so America did have to get out. I mean, most yeah. people will agree with that, apart from some 
diehard laptop bombardiers who presumably think we should just stay there forever and ever until yes. you know Kabul is like New York City. It's just not uh, you know because it would only be a couple of you know billions or tens of billions of dollars a year, and since we're printing the money, yeah, we could we could do that indefinitely. Yeah, so so that's you know it's a, it's a minority view that that one. But in relation to the withdrawal, what I find very interesting in relation to some of the things you've just said there about Trump, Trump is seen as this great aberration, this break with normalcy, American politics. You know, there was there was so much anti-Trumpism, some of it perfectly legitimate and some of it quite hysterical. But there was so much of it that by contrast, every other American president started to look wonderful. So everything that had come before Trump was apparently normal politics, including, I suppose, the bombing of Cambodia and Hiroshima and all the other crazy things American presidents have done. Um, And Trump was seen as the unacceptable face of American power and everything else by default came to be seen as in some way acceptable. So what I think is interesting about the Afghanistan question is that this actually explodes that idea to a certain extent. I mean, you're right, Biden is following Trump's policy to a large extent here in terms of eventually just withdrawing America from that conflict. But if you think about who is responsible for Afghanistan, it is largely the responsibility of the American establishment. One of the dynasties, the Bush, the Bush dynasty. And then, of course, the Clinton dynasty was involved in terms of the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, Obama, and so on. And Mm -hmm. this mess is one that was created by the establishment wing of American politics rather than by the insurgent wing of American politics, which is why I think um, Biden's screw-ups are quite important because it is a useful, if quite horrific, reminder that the good guys, the adults, the sensible people are often actually very destructive. You absolutely nailed it. The idea that our, you know, I, I think that there was a, a legitimate justification for the U.S. going into Afghanistan in search of al-Qaeda and in search of bin Laden. Um, you know, it comes out now and people are re- remembering this because it was so long ago that there were at various points where the Taliban, which, you know, had at various points, you know, warm relations with the United States and then not so warm. But at various points, they offered to kind of turn him over uh, in the early 2000s and things like that. There was a lot more negotiating going on that we said no. And at a certain point, George W. Bush said, no, you know, we're, we're doing it our way. Um, and then once we got in there, then, you know, we started to nation build and we started to have this fantasy that we were going to remake and not even remake, but make Afghanistan, um, into a, you know, a 51st state or something like that. And it was, um, you know, it was insane. And one of the things that we need to do, um, and if I, you know, I feel bad, I feel like Bill Clinton, at Oxford protesting against the Vietnam War on foreign soil, talking to a British podcast about problems with America. But um, one of the <laughs> things that we need to do, Americans, you know, beyond laying too much responsibility at the feet of individual leaders, I think, also are really bad at history. And like, we've already forgotten what an absolute insane idiot Donald Rumsfeld was and Dick Cheney, who were mm-hmm. retreads from the you know, Ford administration, one of the shortest and least distinguished administrations in American and I'd say world history, 
these fucking guys were like, they were talking about <laughs> things that they had no idea of. Um, and they set policies that, you know, kept us there. You're absolutely right. Obama at one point tripled troop strength in Afghanistan because he said uh, Iraq was the stupid war. Afghanistan was the legitimate one. And then they cooked up this theory that a surge in Afghanistan, you know, in the late aughts, early teens somehow worked, whatever that meant. But we need to constantly be recovering what is not even ancient history. I mean, it's this is all recent history that we've just forgotten. Um, for me, the ultimate, you know, um, problem with the withdrawal is not even the logistics of it, which are horrific. And I got to tell you, uh, you know, my girlfriend pointed this out to me, and I think it's really um, a stunning kind of way of two images that hopefully cap a period of delusion where we were fighting a global war on terror. But the first um, is the image from the uh, from 9-11 when uh, people were jumping off of the World Trade Center and mm-hmm. you just see them falling, you know, and and then, you know, in the Afghanistan withdrawal where you see people falling off of plain fuselage, mm-hmm. like landing gear that they were holding on to. And this we need to bracket this period and study it and remember it so that we don't constantly repeat it again and again, which I think we're doing. To me, the problem with the withdrawal is not even the logistics per se as awful as they are. We are having a debate in the United States. We occupy a country for 20 years, and then there are up to the high estimate is there are 80,000 Afghans who had some tight connection with the U.S., who who helped us, who cooperated with us, et cetera. And we are dickering over letting them into the country or or even resettling them anywhere. And it's like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This, uh, you know, in America, there's this weird thing where every time we lose a war, which is to say basically every war since, essentially since World War II, People say, oh, we're humiliated, you know, and this is humiliating. This is this or that is humiliating. To me, it's not humiliating to get out of Kabul and to get out of Afghanistan. It is deeply humiliating and embarrassing. I choke up thinking about this to say we told people you help us and we will make sure your lives are livable somehow. And we're turning our back mm-hmm. on that. And from from a moral position, it's reprehensible, but also just from a pragmatic one, because we've been telling our allies and the people we, you know, at the point of a gun often say, do our bidding and we'll, we'll take care of you. We've done this in Iraq. We've done this in uh, Libya. We've done this everywhere where we say, you know, we're going to protect you right up until it's in our interest to say, screw you. And then we're out the door. It's, it's very disturbing. Yes, I completely agree. And there's a similar dynamic in the UK where, uh, British mm-hmm. forces as well. And of course, NATO forces, um, were heavily reliant on local yeah. people, on Afghans in terms of interpretation, other forms of assistance, people who really put their necks on the line to assist our forces, right. as they are described. And the the effort to get them out is just not good enough. And I think, firstly, as you say, from a moral perspective, it is just abhorrent. But from that political perspective, I think that the the US and the UK don't I think they underestimate how much they will be seen as an untrustworthy yep. ally if they can't even get out the guys who helped them in a war yep. situation and that is going to have long-term repercussions firstly on the lives of these people who do deserve refuge in the west and yep. should be flown out and should be given new lives but also on uh, the standing of the west in relation to all sorts yep. of other conflicts and i think biden and boris johnson and others are simply not factoring that in but in you, you mentioned there 
9-11 and after 9-11, America goes into Afghanistan to look for bin Laden. And you say that it was, there was a justification to that. I actually, uh, I actually think that it would have been incredibly weird and remiss of the United States if after that attack, they hadn't mm-hmm. done something. They hadn't gone somewhere to look for the guys who did this, who killed 3,000 Americans and punished them with extreme prejudice yeah. so that you know there is a situation where you do need you had uh, suggested you know like the, I, and i remember writing something like this uh tongue-in-cheek at the time it would yeah. have been as smart to bomb saudi arabia uh as as afghanistan yeah. because all of the or not all but virtually all of the hijackers were saudis um and you know and while That's bin right. laden was being paid essentially to stay out of uh saudi arabia etc it's the uh, you know the Saudi government is, you know, is, is the, the rot at, at a lot of what was, you know, seen as Islamofascism or, you know, Islamic terrorism and things like that. That's right. Absolutely. And so it was a very confusing yeah. moment after 9-11 because it was not particularly clear where this was coming from, who right. was responsible for it, what could be done about these people. But I do understand perfectly the, the, the necessity of a nation state to stand up for itself when thousands of its citizens are slaughtered in an apocalyptic right. fashion. Um, but, but the reason I, uh, I raise that is because we are now approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which I think is a very significant event. And it, marries up very neatly with the re- firstly with the return of the Taliban to power which is just simply yeah. extraordinary and with the fact that islamic terrorism if anything is worse now than it was in 2001 in terms of isis and various other al qaeda related forces in right. syria and iraq and potentially in afghanistan and also in europe so i want to ask you just on this anniversary this approaching anniversary of uh, an incredibly barbaric assault on the city where you live. I want to ask you what you think has changed or what you think has been achieved. Because when I look at it, it seems to me that America and the West more broadly, they've abandoned their own liberties in the name of anti-terrorism. So a lot of anti-terrorism legislation and rules and regulations actually undercut the freedoms of the West. And they've screwed up those parts of the world where they said they would go and root out the terrorists and teach them a lesson. Has the war on terror been lost by the, the supposedly democratic West? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And the way you phrase it, I mean, it answers itself, which is that, yes, in a, in a profound way, we lost the war on terror. Um, in another, and this is a significant kind of victory in this, is that I think in the U.S. we are done with an act of projection into foreign countries, rooting out um, uh, Islamic terrorists in any case. I mean, we're out of Afghanistan. Uh, we are still in Iraq somewhat. We're still in Yemen and things like that. But these are unpopular wars. And, you know, what we have done, I, I, there's there's two elements to it. And I'll, I'll go with the projection of force elsewhere. First is, you know, we destroyed the Middle East and the Iraq war was such a phenomenal non sequitur to 9-11. It is still mind-boggling. And this is almost, I uh, once wrote about uh, what I called national pants-shitting moments, uh, which were like, (laughs) where you realize that, holy cow, you know, like that the people who are in charge and the adults in the room are insane or idiots or there's no justification. And, you know, one of these moments was 
when, um, you know, Bill Clinton in the late 90s, when, uh, you know, Monica Lewinsky's, the, you know, the scandal of all of that was coming about. And at one point, when she was giving grand jury testimony, he bombed sites in Afghanistan and in Kenya. And it was like he only did that because of a domestic, you know, sex scandal. And like you realize, uh, and then he did something similar when he bombed uh, Yugoslavia, you know, when his impeachment trial was starting, you know, and, and it's like mm-hmm. when when you are faced with the reality that the most powerful person on the planet, you know, who commands more bombs and more weaponry than anybody is doing these kinds of actions for such base, banal, superficial reasons, like history dissolves. I mean, it's like, holy Christ, you know, and and our invasion of, of Iraq was somewhat like that in the uh, in 2003. Um, what it did was it completely destabilized that region and it opened it up. So, you know, our, our big enemy in that, in that region was Iran. And we basically, you know, just from a pragmatic point of view, we essentially delivered the Middle East or certainly Iraq and Syria and whatnot to Iranian influence. Um, and now we're doing other weird things where we're, you know, still – uh, supporting a, you know, a, a near genocidal war in Yemen from, uh, from the air and things like that. So, you know, that is a total disaster of our making. And it was an elective war that is just deeply both unsuccessful on any level, but also deeply, deeply disturbing on a, on a domestic level. You know, there's a great kind of, uh, I don't know exactly how to qualify him ideologically. He's definitely got a libertarian streak to him. There was a great historian and political scientist named Arthur E. Kirch who wrote a book called The Decline of American Liberalism that was originally published in the mid-50s, kind of at the height, the early height of the Cold War. And he said, you know, one of the problems with a garrison state, which America had become under the in the early years of the Cold War, is that in order to defeat the Soviet Union, we started acting like them, where we started all individual efforts were subjugated in the name of the collective to fight this horrible existential threat. Uh, you know, we had a draft, you know, we continued a peacetime draft. We did um, all sorts of loyalty, all sorts of things that you that's what we were fighting the soviets to avoid and we became in some meaningful way you know the the dark twin of the soviet union where it was like no well you know education the reason we funded college the way we did was because we needed more engineers to build bombs to you know to destroy the soviet union or keep them at bay we started invading countries as we were attacking the soviet union for being an expansionist etc and there's definitely something like that with the global war on terror. Um, and the other thing about this is that things like the TSA and, you know, the ubiquity and acceptance ultimately of secret surveillance as well as public surveillance in the name of defeating everything uh, that might be some kind of threat is now just pervasive in American society to a point now where most people don't even remember a time before this. And you can see, you know, the, I, there's no question to my mind that the way we're dealing with the pandemic, with COVID and the mm-hmm. kind of, you know, quick lockdown and whatnot, that would have been unthinkable if it had happened in 1999, if it had happened before yeah. we had gotten used to this idea in the name of terror, in the name of these really random small probability um, events, like being killed, even, you know, even in the year that you count up 
all, you know, 9-11 in 2001, like nobody in America statistically was actually killed by terrorism, but we're going to reorient our entire society to prevent any act of terrorism on American soil. That gives rise to a world now where we are going through an extended lockdown in order to prevent people from getting sick and some people dying from a disease whose infection fatality rate is, you know, maybe 1%. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. That's a very good description of, of the impact of the post-9-11 era. And I want to come back to the question of COVID and lockdowns with you in particular <laughs> in a moment. But just to, just one final point on this um the role of America in the world, which is something you've spoken about and written yep. about uh, a lot over the years. And I think it's a very important one because I, I completely agree with you that one of the problems is this issue of projection. So a lot of the American wars of recent times have been clearly issues of projection. Now you have the most ridiculous form of that with a cl Bill Clinton bombing countries because, you know, he got into trouble over the Lewinsky scandal or because he was having a hard yeah. time with Hillary Clinton or whatever else it might be, uh, you know, absolutely preposterous and barbaric, you know, as an extension of an attempt to defend your own reputation, you would drop bombs on another country. It really is staggering to think about yeah. it. But even beyond the ridiculousness of Bill Clinton, there have been other interventions from Bush and others as well, and including from mm -hmm. Trump and his dropping of massive bombs on Syria. And by the way, that was a time, if I if I may, just that was mm -hmm. when Trump, the first time he launched a couple of missiles in Syria, suddenly the establishment was like today, Donald, literally yeah. saying things like today, Donald Trump became president. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, please go away, go away. Like the way that you show your president is by lobbing missiles, you know, that are mostly symbolic in nature. It's like, yeah. what the fuck? You know, my <laughs> all four of my grandparents came to America in the 19 teens mm. and they didn't come. You know, they were escaping stupid European countries, Italy and Ireland, <laughs> where they were in misery. They didn't come here, you know, to you know, to like raise, you know, generations in a country that then becomes, you know, you, where you become president by bombing Syria. It's, uh, absolutely. Sorry. Absolutely. And, <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right because it's precisely that response to Trump's dropping of bombs. You, you know, now he's president, yeah. which is why they do that in the first place, because the only one of the few ways in which you can appear presidential or rise above all the crap of your own problems in your own domestic crises is by dropping a few bombs and saying, I'm a, I'm a statesman who's going to right all the wrongs of the world. But I, I wanted to ask you just one more question on this issue, which is mm -hmm. um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think it should be followed by a withdrawal of American forces from Iraq and get, out, get the hell out of Yemen and stop cozying up yeah. to the Saudis. I really agree with all of that. But I wanted to ask you, do you think there's a problem with some of this? Because if this were driven by a pragmatic recognition that it is not possible to export American values to other countries, 
uh, I wouldn't have a problem with it because it is not possible to export those values. Mm-hmm. You can't deliver democracy and freedom down the barrel of a gun. That is a contradiction in terms. In fact, people become more democratic and more free by struggling for those things themselves. It's In fact, it's through the process of fighting for them that they become a real thing. So the idea that you can put a gun at a leader's head and say, make your country a democracy is obviously completely preposterous. But do you think there's a problem in the possibility that the reason America is seems to to be stopping doing this stuff is not because it recognizes that it cannot be done, but because it has lost faith in those values themselves? So it's not because it doesn't think yeah. that democracy and freedom can be delivered to the Afghanis, which is a very difficult prospect, but that it just doesn't think those values are worth delivering around the world at all and possibly not even worth maintaining in the US. And the answer to that question, yeah. I think, does throw open lots of other questions as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And I do think that, um, you know, in the way that uh, perhaps the British Empire lost faith in its motivating ideals, you know, before decolonization, uh, and it was right to lose you know, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of those values were awful. Um, I think the United States is going through, um, you know, to use the word empire is, you know, is vexing and is probably more controversial than it needs to be. But as a mature power and as a mature country uh, coming off of a hundred years of near global, not domination, but hegemony and like forward positioning, the U.S. does not you know, I don't think the United States believes in a, um, you know, what Ronald Reagan would call, you know, the model of the shining city on the hill or, or like America does not believe its own story anymore. I think um, and this is, you know, you see this in the rise of things like the 1619 Project. Uh, you see this in the rise of cancel culture. You see this in the uh, the speed with which both Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and uh, conservatives and liberals in various positions will say, we need to get rid of these longstanding traditions because they may have served a purpose at some point, but they just get in the way of our rank political opportunity right now. So, you know, we have a tradition of filibustering in the Senate, which acts as a check on majority power. And now, you know, a while ago it was Republicans who were saying we got to get rid of this bullshit. Now it's Democrats because they just want to get shit done. Um, there is a major kind of rethinking going on. And I think this started in earnest not stupidly either at the end of the cold war when you know we emerged from a struggle with the soviet union and these are two western ideologies that i think need to be understood as such you know either a very heavily controlled and planned economy and society uh the soviet model and a less you know one that was more freewheeling certainly you know both um you know both systems were you know had many things alike uh, as well as different, but, you know, the free world, what was called the free world. After the, the conclusion of the Cold War, America did not do the work that it needed to do as a society to mm-hmm. say, okay, absent the Cold War, which had focused and warped and um, um, kind of bedeviled us for, you know, 30 or 40 or, or you know, 50, or I guess, 45 years. Um, we didn't figure out what does, what does an American ideal of freedom, of individualism, of laissez-faire in matters both big and small, as well as concern for, you know, the, the wretched of the earth. What does that look like in a world that is post-communist? Uh, we didn't. And as a result, we now live in a world where we don't have 
a narrative um, that people, that a, a majority of people or even a strong plurality agree in. And as a result, you get a kind of Trump model of, I want to go back to a world, I want to make America great again, by which I mean, I want to go back to an America that is filled with big companies like GM and AT&T that make big things and are staffed mostly by people who don't speak foreign languages, who are white and who, you know, it's kind of a top-down dominated world, even though people are doing okay. Or we live in a world where America is a uniquely racist, horrible, horrible, exploitive country that is worse now than it ever has been. And yeah. must the only reason for its continued existence is to pay reparations real and imagined to groups that may or may not have been harmed by, you know, our actions of the past 20 years, much less the past 250. We need a rethink of that. So I think. You know, to get to your point, um, you know, we're beating a retreat partly because we have not been successful um, in remaking certainly, you know, Iraq in the Middle East or Afghanistan and Central Asia. Um, but we're also beating a retreat partly because we don't believe that America um, deserves to, you know, kind of have a, a place of pride. And this is to go back to that question of like not accepting America, uh, Afghan refugees and whatnot. This is like we're both both sides of the aisle in America are giving up on things like immigration and globalization. Joe Biden, one of his main economic programs is Buy America, which is exactly what Donald Trump was talking about. It's this right. inward looking thing. It's a shrinking from not military adventurism, but just engagement and globalization in the best way possible, where what was great about America was that it started off as a shitty English colony, and then suddenly <laughs> it opened up to the world, you know, where it became immensely polyglot, and it became capable of absorbing and, um, you know, being mongrelized and kind of acculturating and assimilating and coming up with something new and different and dynamic and innovative. And that kind of thinking is out the window now where it's like, we got to lock down the borders because of COVID, because of terrorism, because of trade from China, because, you know, cheap shit from China is going to destroy us. Um, and, you know, we don't have that faith that we can continue to be this ongoing experiment in like, not in directional evolution, but like just a mixing and changing and creative destruction that is really I think at the essence of what is good and great about America. That's a, a very good description of America. And um, just to bring that that part of the discussion on a bit, you mentioned there in passing, you mentioned cancel culture, which um, has cut in some people's mouths. It, it's used as a very frivolous term. Oh, cancel culture, who cares? It's not real. It's not that big mm -hmm. a problem. But I think that actually touches on a lot of what you've just been talking about because um uh, I remember just sticking with the Biden administration for a moment and, and whether this is going to change things for the better or not. I remember that when the presidential election was taking place, there were lots of good liberals, you know, left liberals, right liberals who argued that if you wanted to get rid of things like cancel culture, if you want to push back identity politics, then the right thing to do would be to vote for Joe Biden. And their argument was that someone like Donald Trump is a very inflammatory character. He makes these problems worse because 
it, it, it was the argument, that, you know, if you wear a short skirt, what do you expect? Because what they were essentially saying was right. Donald Trump is such a loud mouth. He's so brash that of course yeah. there will be cancel culture. Of course there will be a hysterical response, which is never a very convincing argument for why these phenomena exist. Right. But the, the idea was that if you wanted sensibleness and if you wanted to withdraw all the pressure and hysteria from American politics, you should vote for Biden. But those things have not actually happened. Cancel culture has not gone away. And the intensive racialization of politics and identity politics and, you know, all these people who make a buck from going into corporations and talking about white privilege and white fragility, Robin DiAngelo, Robin DiAngelo still has a great career, even in the Biden era. So were those liberals who thought that if you brought the adults back into the room, that all that stuff would go away? Were they just wrong? And how do you think those things are going to go in the future? Yeah, they're wrong. Um, and, you know, partly, again, it's because this idea that what we really need are uh, we need teachers, we need monitors in the in the classrooms, mm -hmm. and then things will settle down. You know, the punks in the back of the classroom will stop bullying people. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. It's It's just... <laughs> A completely wrong metaphor of, you know, we're all adults and we all have, um, you know, we have more means to speech, uh, you know, than ever in human history. And a lot of what passes for cancel culture, you know, uh, and particularly if you're on the receiving end of it, you're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. A good chunk of it is simply that more people with more points of view can speak more freely, including both, you know, making deep critiques of whatever you or I might be saying, as well as completely frivolous you know, kind of trolling, uh, responses or complete, you know, completely ignoring things. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we need to make sure that we understand is that even in an age of cancel culture, and, you know, I have a story in the new issue of reason, which is a taxonomy of cancel culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think cancel culture is a real phenomenon like Winston Marshall from Mumford and Sons earlier this year, where he, made the mistake of, you know, on Twitter saying something nice about Andy No, the, uh, you know, the controversial right-wing journalist and critic of Antifa. He, you know, he said, oh, that's a good book. You're right. You're a brave man. And then like a couple hours later, he was like, I, you know, I have sinned and I need to go away for a while and think on, you know, go into the penitentiary, put on the hair shirt and think about all of the people I've hurt by saying Andy No is in a complete fucking piece of shit. Uh, and then eventually he left the band, um, you know, and he, and he explained why, et cetera. I mean, like, this is, this is weird shit. This is, this is not something we saw a lot of 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Cancer culture is real and it exists. Having said all of that, it exists in this backdrop of a world in which, you know, more people can speak more freely than ever before and, and scratch out an audience, um, mm. which is the, the thing that we need to protect. And this is where, you know, Joe Biden is not going to protect that. Most liberals in the in the D.C. government are not going to protect that. They're busy trying to figure out ways to hem in uh, social media platforms, big and small, so that they uh, don't spew hate speech or they don't get too big where they might actually be able to like, deliver a large audience to, you know, weird individuals or something like that. Um, we need to fight against all of that. Um, but again, just to go to your, your basic point of this notion that if we only had the right adults in the room, um, you know, which was a popular phrase, it's like, no, you know what? We're all adults here. That's the, that's the promise of liberal governance, right? Yeah, Is that like, absolutely. you know, when you turn 18, you know, when you turn 21, when you turn something, 
you are the decider, you know, for your life. And <laughs> I don't want adults in the room. What I want are like stable, you know, small rules that help mitigate, you know, obvious violent conflict and then, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Um, and we're not, we're not going to get that under Biden any more than we got it under Trump because that isn't what people are trying to achieve. We have these small groups of power, um, you know, where nobody has even a plurality of, of kind of ideological consensus. And rather than fight to win a, you know, a kind of consensus of well, this is what society should look like, people are trying to, you know, through hook or crook, trying to just keep other, you know, keep their opponents from actually debating things. Completely. And, you know, that, that, that phrase, the adults in the room, it was always used as a juxtaposition between the cool headed, sensible, Kamala Harris, at least on one side, you know, Biden's a different prospect and the irrational yeah. childish Trump on the other side. But of course, what it really did was infantilize the population at large. You know, you need these people in charge of you, very cool, very rational, telling you what's what. So it had this very illiberal infantilizing dynamic that, that was really, really palpable. But on, on, on the cancel culture question, because you, you have, as you say, you have broken it down. You've written about it at length. And you talk about there being three basic types of cancel culture. There's personal, political, and corporate. And my view is that these things are all kind of interrelated. And um, so, for example, so if you, if you look at the UK, for example, one of the most striking mm -hmm. things about the UK, and I presume it's similar in the US, is that politicians who aren't quite brave enough to pass a law saying you can't say the following things because it's not good to be a censor, uh, they will often put pressure on private companies to do that. So they outsource censorship to Silicon Valley. And then, of course, mm -hmm. the creation of that Silicon Valley censorship, the fact that you can be thrown off Twitter for questioning transgenderism or for saying something else, that feeds into personal self-cancellation and, and the idea that you right. must censor yourself if you want to be a part of society, if you want to be a respectable yeah. person, and, and if you want to have a platform on on, on social media. So the, right. there's lots of links between these things. But I want to, one of the points you've made is that out of all these things, state censorship remains the most problematic form of censorship. And I wanted to just to ask you about that. Is your argument there that it's it's the worst form of censorship because it's the one that comes with the most dire consequences? So you could potentially be fined a lot of money, you could be put in jail, the state is an incredibly powerful force. And therefore, if it's telling you what you can and cannot say, that has a direct impact on your life. Is that how you quantify the problematic nature of state censorship? Or is there something else going on there as well? It's it's uh, roughly an Analogous, but it's a little bit different because I don't think this is as much of a, um, a financial or you're going to be put in jail necessarily. But it's each of these things when you when when you go after people on a personal level to shut them up, you know, and you chase somebody off of Twitter that casts a shadow. I don't you know, just for argument's sake, say it's like three meters, you know, in circumference or <laughs> diameter. If you get kicked off of Twitter, you know. Like you cancel yourself and you go off of Twitter, Dr. Seuss, you know, stops publishing books that have literally not sold in numbers big enough to be recorded <laughs> by the book selling industry for years. You know, they, that's pathetic in my mind, but it's like, okay, that doesn't cast that 
broad a shadow or that dark a shadow. If you get kicked off of Amazon, if you get kicked off of Twitter, and, and for whatever reason that a corporation says, we don't want you here, that's a bigger shadow. And then when the government says, we are not going to allow certain types of language. And in the United States, I mean, we don't really have a viable or meaningful hate speech legislation. We have mm. a strong First Amendment tradition where it's really with the exception of fighting words. Um, you, it's hard to be penalized, you know, in a, um, by the government for speech, but there are dozens of laws in dozens of states that are moving towards that. Um, you know, criminalizing hate speech, uh, in a more European way. And the problem with, as you go, you know, to the government over corporate power, because, you know, if you get kicked off of Twitter, you can still go to Facebook. We had, um, or YouTube, you can still go elsewhere. We had a video at Reason, um, uh, that was banned from YouTube. Uh, it was this, it came out at the beginning of the pandemic, at the beginning of, yeah, it was like March or April of 2020. And it was about DIY body hackers who were trying to come up with ways to inoculate themselves against, you know, COVID. And they're kind of nuts, but they're like talking about, okay, we're going to do this or that. And then, you know, 18 months later or something, 15 months later, it was banned from YouTube saying that it was uh, trading in COVID uh, misinformation. And we appealed it. We lost the appeal, but it's still up on Facebook and it's still up on our website. Like we can still publish it, you know, and that's, it should still be up on YouTube. I think you, you know, it's a bad idea for corporations to be deciding this type of shit, but you can get around it. But if the government now says we will ban any speech we deem as bad, then it's like harder. Where do you go next? You got to go to Canada. You can't go there because they have terrible speech <laughs> laws. You can't go to yeah. England. You can't, you know, et cetera. No. So it's partly that, that the bigger you get. And it's also true in the U.S. You know, if your local government bans something, you can move from New York. You can move from New York City. Then if the state does, well, you can move from New York State, but it's harder. Then if the federal government does, you got to leave the United States and it just gets harder and harder. And I think one of the problems, and this goes back to that deep loss of faith in anything good and proper and decent about America, we are in the United States losing um, our understanding of why free speech um, and open expression and contentious expression and oftentimes ugly expression, but oftentimes really idealistic and fucked up and weird and just wonderful and, you know, idiosyncratic expression, why it's so important. Um, we, we are now in a world where people, um, you know, and this, this is true. The younger people are in America, the more likely they are to say free expression needs to be balanced against its psychic harms on, on people. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was growing up in the seventies and I, you know, in the eighties, like that was not really a consideration. The consideration was, no, I've got this thing I've got to say. It's like George Carlin, the comedian, you know, I'm going to make this joke no matter who it offends. Um, and now we are having a different conversation in the United States and it's a troubling one. Um, again, it's against this backdrop of more free speech than ever, which is good. And we need to keep that in perspective, but, you know, we can lose, we can lose this uh, free speech, which is very important to, I think, human dignity as well as progress. Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. 
And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spiked produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. I think that's a very important point and, and really speaks to the necessity of defending freedom of speech in all the areas that you talk about. So uh, I know that one argument that you would never make, but I have heard other people make this argument is, well, state censorship is the only real form of censorship, and therefore that's what we yeah. should focus on. Whereas I think what you're saying is the far more subtle and correct point, which is that there are uh, censorship has different differing impacts depending on where it's coming from but of course it should be challenged in right. all those different arenas and and if i may part of the other the weird thing and this is where the libertarian twist which i think you and i might disagree on on some level is a lot of the laws in the u.s to govern speech now the one you know the left broadly speaking is saying okay we want to cut out all of this hate speech however we, you know when we get to define it and we get to decide who's you know who's doing the hating yeah. and whatnot um, so, you know, that, that's a kind of naked form of speech control and censorship. On the right, it tends to be more saying to businesses like Twitter and YouTube and smaller platforms or larger ones, you know, like Facebook and saying, you know what? You're not allowed to pick and choose who gets to be on your platform. Um, because, right. you know, we don't like that. And, you know, and th so you get, we're in this, you know, hellacious kind of, series of just hypocrisies where in most cases people on the left will say to a business say like a baker you know we had supreme court rulings and you know major you know social conflagrations about this like where a religious baker doesn't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding no you have to do it because in our society everybody can get a cake from wherever they want to and then when it comes to online, you have, you know, Republicans saying, no, you have to have Donald Trump speak. You have to have every, you know, edgelord, peppy the frog quoting <laughs> memester on your platform. And you're not allowed to kick anybody off. And it's like, come on, like, guys, let's, you know, and you have the left saying, like, if you don't like Twitter, go build your own, you know, and it's like, OK, well, what about cakes? Yeah. <laughs> Does that work for cakes, et cetera? And it's like. Can we at least admit that we have gone beyond any kind of idealism and we're just in a will to power or in like a Nietzschean free for all? And so that we're not even pretending to be principled anymore. And I, and the reason I stress having like a principled approach to this is that it minimizes the amount of bullshit that people have to put up with. So we can just get on with building a world where people can, you know, whoever you are, you will be able to find a shop that will bake a fucking cake for you. And you'll be able to find a social media platform that you'll feel comfortable with. Like instead of litigating every damn decision that everybody is making at every level every day, that's to my mind with the reason, and I realize this is off topic a little bit. The reason I'm libertarian is because I think politics needs to be you know, it's the least rewarding part of our lives because it's where, you know, a slim majority of people gets to shove their vision of the good life down the throats of everybody else. I want to minimize that to the smallest amount of brain power and like energy that we're expending as possible so we can get on with actually 
living and loving and working and, you know, building worlds that are actually fun and interesting and fair and positive to live in. Those hypocrisies you talk about there, I think that's really, that's an important thing just to dwell on for a moment because I've, I've noted the same thing. You have this extraordinary situation where you have people on the left who are essentially standing up for private property rights. And they're essentially saying, yeah. you know, Twitter and Facebook and all the rest of it, they're private companies. They can do what they want. If you're far right or right wing, or if you're a feminist, if you're Megan Murphy, you know, a, 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 a very rational Canadian feminist who just happens to think that people with penises are men. If you do, if you do any of those things, therefore these private companies have the right to kick you off. So they've completely abandoned their general principles, which is that the state sometimes right. has a role in controlling private companies. And then on the right, you have people who would traditionally not all of them, but some of them would traditionally stand up for the right of private corporations and private companies to right. set their own rules and levels of governance who are now saying, well, you know, we need to find a way to force these companies to platform people they don't want to platform. So there is a real strange situation. And I really agree with you that the only way through this is a principled defense of freedom of speech in the various different arenas and a recognition that arguing for that will, might differ depending on where you are. But I wanted to ask you a specific yeah. question on this. And we have talked about this before, both in person and on podcasts previously as well, just about the libertarian approach to to the question of freedom of speech. Because the one thing that strikes me as, you know, this is the old Marxist in me coming out, I suppose, I sometimes worry that American libertarians are not really prepared for the era that we are being thrust against our will into. And that's an era in which there is an enormous amount of outsourcing of censorship i mean it's it's actually quite yeah. rare for the state to censor opinions these days you know even in the right. uk the uk is completely nuts on the question of censorship we currently have rainbow colored police cars driving around the streets of london encouraging people to report offensive things they've heard online so that is completely and utterly crazy right. but even the uk would not do something like ban Lady Chatterley's lover, right? That belongs to the past. Yeah. No government, no minister right. is going to do that anymore. But what they do is they outsource those prejudices and those authoritarian instincts. They outsource them to Silicon Valley. They outsource them to yeah. unaccountable billionaires. They outsource them to these new networks, which influence every aspect of our lives. And they say, well, you know, if you keep publishing these things, we'll punish you with a fine. So in right. that kind of situation where there is a close relationship between the state and the private sector on the question of what you are allowed to say, is there not an argument that libertarians should be saying, okay, so this compromises laissez-faire values, and in these mm -hmm. kinds of situations, we might need to put pressure on private companies to get their act together? Oh, I think no question that, you know, they're in, in a kind of libertarian cartoon universe. The uh, distinction between public, the public sphere and the private sphere is very clear. The private sector and public sector. In reality, it is much, much more mixed than all of that. Um, and I think absolutely one of the things, and that's part of the piece in, uh, in the latest issue of reason is about is that we need to be pushing back on, you know, on defending people, making it easier for people who have unpopular opinions to continue to, to, you know, to have a public voice. We need to push back on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, on, you know, Instagram, whatever, to say, you know what, like, it is better. You, you have a right to ban people, I think, 
But it would be better if you figured out a way to accommodate more voices and, you know, allow people to create the the experience they want online without chasing everybody off. You know, same thing with Amazon. Amazon at various points has, you know, banned certain books because, you know, on, on uh, transgender questions, um, if they deem that the book uh, treats being transgender as a uh, psychological problem or something as indicative of that. You know, Amazon doesn't carry every book in the world, but, you know, they should carry as many as they can and they should, we need to push on them to carry as broad a array of books on a given topic um, as possible, as well as making sure that the government does not pass absolute laws or is trying to influence things. You know, the the Biden administration has made a big deal about trying to, you know, they, they're giving lists of people and of, you know, sources to Facebook who are spreading COVID misinformation. And it's like the yeah. one thing, you know, I, I expect that we'll get into this, but, you know, I hope they include the FDA and the CDC and, you know, people like Anthony Fauci who yeah. are like incredible fonts of miss and dis or, you know, whatever information. But yeah, we need to be pushing on all of that and we need to we need to create a world, you know, a world and a culture of free speech and of open debate where, you know, the first move isn't to just completely cock block or block at the root level people that we don't like, voices we don't like, ideas we don't like. Uh, and I do think historically libertarians have oftentimes fixated only on government actors um, and that the state as a source of power um, I think that is not true libertarianism, if I can, you know, engage in like some true Scotsman type thinking, um, <laughs> because what, what libertarianism is about is concentrations of power. I do think that there are differences between concentration of powers that accrue in, in functioning markets versus political power and things like that. But we need to be, you know, pushing back on all uh, on all levers of kind of repression and suppression of speech. Absolutely. Because as you were saying, and I totally agree, these are all interlocked. Um, so that, you know, you, you need to defend speech in all circumstances at all, at all levels from all threats, whether it's, you know, ideological, whether it's political, whether it's corporate. Just one final question on this, uh, before we move on to finish on the, on the lockdown question and the future. But I just want to ask you what impact the parlor controversy had on your thinking because mm -hmm. the thing about the parlor controversy of course is that this was presented to us as the social media format that would not be beholden to the same rules where you could be a controversial figure where right. you could even be donald trump and you would not be banned and right. it was for a period of time essentially switched off and it was switched off by mm -hmm. private companies by the people who have a private command over uh, vast swathes of the internet to my mind, and I know that I've spoken to friends of mine who, who would describe themselves as libertarians, but for whom this was a really galvanizing, confronting moment, because that did suggest that the old argument, which is made by both the left and the right, the old argument, well, set up your own Twitter, set up your own Facebook, right. set up your own YouTube. That kind of argument was undercut by that because it gave us a glimpse of a world where even if you were to set up your own Twitter, which is a very difficult thing to do, there's no guarantee mm -hmm. that it would be able to exist in the world as it currently exists. So what impact did that have on your thinking? Are you worried about those kinds of things? How do you think that's going to go? Absolutely. I mean, and you know what this does is it, it helps to 
kind of clarify where the choke points are in, uh, you know, in systems of kind of free speech and free thought. Um, Parler, Parler was, is, was and is a bad service, I think. You know, it's, it's not popular, not because of its ideology. I mean, that's part mm. of it, but it's just set up poorly and things like that. And, you know, but what is fascinating is when you get to a point where it's like, okay, Parler, uh, you know, the people at Amazon Web Services, which, you know, where you host websites, which is all back end stuff. Nobody knows who is hosting, say, we're not going to we don't like what Parler stands for. So we're going to screw you over where the app stores on Google's, you know, Android phones as well as Apple uh, iOS say, we're not going to stock you in our app store because we don't like what you're doing. Um, these are real choke points that um, need to be flushed to into visibility. Um, the good news about that is that um, Parler is back up and running, and there are still, you know, almost infinite amount of space on the web to actually create alternatives to dominant or even hegemonic social media platforms. And this is, you know, we always are taking a snapshot where we're like, well, Facebook has, you know, billions of people in the world. Facebook will be with us forever. Um, that is just simply not true any more than, you know, the A&P uh, grocery store, which at, at its peak penetration in mid 20th century America was vastly more dominant than Walmart is, um, you know, or, or, you know, Barnes and Noble and Borders bookstores, which dominated book selling in America as recently as 15 years ago are, you know, are nowhere to be seen. Amazon will rise and fall. There will always be alternatives. And it is important both to call out the choke points. Um, I'm thinking a lot about this because, um, you know, things like Visa and PayPal and MasterCard that process payments have done this. Um, and they've often done it at the behest or at, you know, at the urging of government to say, you know what, we don't want you to process payments that we think go to sex workers who are actually engaged in sexual, tra you know, sex trafficking or in human trafficking, even if those charges are ridiculous um, and they will do it. So we need to constantly be calling out these intermediaries um, who are who are acting as choke points of expression and engagement. And we also need to be developing alternatives that are beyond the reach of any ideological group, any government, uh, any corporate control. Um, and one of the things I went to, I'm a fan of Bitcoin uh, and of cryptocurrencies more broadly, not because I think they're going to allow people to become rich, et cetera, but because they are creating um, a parallel structure where you can actually have distributed uh, conversations and whatnot. I went to uh, the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and of Square, the payments company and the, and the micro messaging platform. And one of the things he said, you know, and he was, he was a controversial figure. He's very into Bitcoin. Um, and he says, you know, that blockchain technology and Bitcoin is its purest, you know, kind of manifestation or incarnation. What he likes, it's the most important technology of his lifetime. And it allows for distributed kind of leaderless, non-censorable um, activity and that both at Twitter and at Square, he's developing or they're developing peer to peer payment systems and messaging systems, which will be on, be beyond the control of Twitter, which, you know, did something unspeakable when it banned the, to the New York Post article about Hunter Biden a couple of weeks before the presidential election, which was stunning. Mm. And that was a wake up call. That was cold water in the face, you know, but like he wants to get to a world where 
Twitter may be able to do that, but there will be an infinite number of alternatives to Twitter. And I think that's part of what we always need to be moving towards. And we always need to be simultaneously chastising existing powers to be more open and to be more free. But then we also need to be kind of like building out surplus, uh, you know, capacity to continue to do whatever the hell we want. Right. Okay. So on that issue of moving forward, uh, and I have not left enough space for this discussion at all. So forgive me for that. But I want to just um, talk to you about the shadow of COVID and the shadow of lockdowns and what yeah. these things mean for the thing that you and I are very interested in, which is freedom, the greatest freedom it is possible yeah. for humankind to have. And, and the way in which these two phenomena COVID as a virus and lockdown as a problematic policy in response to the virus, the impact that these are going to have on our freedom and on our understanding of ourselves. I'm currently speaking to you from Ireland, uh, from Dublin, which is the, um, the place of my ancestors and the place of some of your ancestors too. I had to, yeah. uh, show my, I had to show my private medical records to get into this country. And there are some venues here where you have to show your private medical records in order to get a pint or buy a meal. So we are entering a new era, whether we like it or not. Some people like it, some people dislike it, some people are somewhere in, right. the, in between. How, how transformative do you think the past 18 months are going to be in terms of not simply the letter of the law and civil liberties as they exist in constitutions and so on, a lot of which have yeah. been suspended over the past 18 months in terms of emergency legislation and, and so on, but, it, but also in terms of the appreciation that people feel for freedom. Do you think it's going to batter that stuff and, and lead us into a world in which fear overrides the desire for freedom, or are you a bit more optimistic? Yeah. Uh, I am uh, sadly um, pessimistic at the moment. I mean, I think this is the battle for if the battle of the last 20 years was tied in many ways, um, you know, in terms of uh, freedom of bodies to move across borders and things like that, if it was tied to the global war on terror, um, you know, the next 20 years is the global war on kind of health and safety. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, you know, this battle is strongly joined there was a um at the beginning of covid uh the uh italian philosopher giorgio agamben or agamben uh who's a foucauldian talked about how you know what foucault talked to and foucault is you know one of the great theorists of state power the way that state power um you know actually is enforced on the bodies of citizens you know, that what the COVID lockdown, and he was talking in Italy, which was, you know, the first and hardest hit country in Europe at the time. And he was saying this is all a pretext or, or effectively what happens is that this is giving the state license to say, you can move here. You can move here. This business is essential. This one is not. And it creates an extended special period. He had started writing in this vein after 9-11 and when people were starting to have their movements curtailed in the name of state security and things like that. Um, what we are seeing now, and especially I suspect it's similar in uh, the UK and uh, and the Republic of Ireland and, and Europe and whatnot, is with the Delta variant now, we are seeing an extension okay. of this to where it is not at all clear under what terms will the state or the various states that are controlling this say, okay, you know what, we're done with this. We're yeah. We're not going to 
insist on a vaccine passport. We're not going to exist on this. We're not going to be taking your temperature. We're not going to be shutting down certain businesses or saying that you can only have 25% of your normal customer base in here. We are now in an open-ended special period where the state gets to control more and more of our very basic movements. A lot of people in the U.S. certainly have said, well, you know, it's not that bad. And, you know, like I can work from home. I can do this. It's kind of pleasant not to have to interact with people that much. You know, my life can go on pretty normally. And I get that. But this is, you know, you know, I mean, do we want to live in a world where like you are not free to enter the U.S. because mm-hmm. of a disease that is has been deadly, no question about it, but is also not at the level of the Black Death. It is not at the level of polio. The vast majority of people who, who contract it uh, and you can avoid it by getting a vaccine if you choose, you know, the, we we need to be pushing against this, not simply for this moment and and about you know i want to be able to build a business i want to be able to live my life you know the way i want to as freely as possible but down the road because what we are seeing in the past you know i i mean there's an argument that during world war ii certainly um there were reasons for the state to override traditional liberties because there was an existential threat to you know the united states to england you know various parts of the world after that, that was replaced by the Cold War, which was certainly less onerous, um, but it also, you know, c- constricted freedom for X, Y, and Z reason. There was a brief moment where that was kind of gone in the 90s, and then immediately we were subjected to something again, uh, you know, a lower version of the Cold War, and now we're going into something else, uh, you know, after the war on terror. This is, this is not a, a good way to live, and I think we need to push back against it because the world in many ways is doing phenomenally well. Uh, you know, when, what we see is that when we um, increase trade and commerce and um, kind of movement across borders, people get wealthier. Poor people disappear, not because they die of starvation, but because they become middle class and upper middle class. New companies start. We can explore space. I mean, there are like an infinite number of um, <laughs> of incredible worlds that we can create, but we're not going to be able to do that if we have to fucking show, you know, that we have a Moderna booster shot every six months and that this business... <laughs> You know, can't do what it wants to do, but this one can for this time being, et cetera. Right. My my final question on just pushing one of those points you've just made there, which is that, I mean, I really agree that I think this, that what COVID has done or what the lockdown mentality has done has really shrunk our sense of being a human species. So one clear example right. of that is the absolutely devastating impact that lockdown policies are going to have in the long term on the developing world in particular, which has been, for various reasons, shunted out by the the cease of e- economic activity, the closure of borders, the the way in which lockdowns in the West have called into question the need for production, the need for other forms of uh, behavior around the world. Yeah. And all of that is going to blow back enormously on the poorest in particular. So the idea of a human family, I know that sounds very happy clappy, but that has been completely obliterated by this. And now it's every man or woman for themselves. Themselves, hide away in your home, feel safe, don't shake anyone else's hand, don't hug people. Uh, it's better to be atomized than to be at risk. That's essentially the the value that has come out of this past 18 months. So I just wanted to ask you, uh, 
maybe we will have to end on a pessimistic note. Maybe that's just the, the times we live in. But it seems to me that what's happened, the reason I think the COVID period is worse in some ways than the war on terror period and the Cold War period that preceded it, is because it has very successfully weaved together with pre-existing cultural trends. The cultural trend mm-hmm. towards cutting yourself from off from other people, arguably social distancing already existed even prior to COVID-19, especially class social distancing. Don't go near those people. Mm-hmm. Don't talk to those people. Don't right. engage with those horrible racists and far-right people and so on. So all those phenomenon of wanting to cut yourself off, wanting to live in a safe space, wanting to hide away from the world and pull down the shutters, they existed prior to COVID-19 and they've mm-hmm. intensified since then. So how do you think we pull ourselves out of this? What are the kind of ideas, possibly even policies, that you think we need in order to drag humanity away from this kind of battening down the hatches towards being more adventurous, more robust, more liberal? To key off of that last phrase, more liberal, I think one of the things that we need to do, because I don't see this as we've been going through a period of intense individualism. Um, it's more that we have chunked up to the le- level of the nation state. Um, and so right. you see the UK, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, UK for UK people, uh, the, the America, the United States, we're going to close our borders. Uh, countries are acting more kind of uh, insular. And, you know, Australia is not saying, uh, you know, it's Australia for Australians. It's New Zealand for New Zealanders. I think we need to really reinvigorate and, you know, remake the case in new language for the liberal values of individualism and of a kind of universalism. Um, one of the problems with identity politics, and I realize I'm kind of jumping around here, but identity politics is a denial of the great insights of the liberal project, which is that humans are basically equal, that we, you know, there are distinct local variations that are interesting and endlessly fascinating, and we can learn from them and hybridize them and mix and mongrelize them. And it becomes, you know, it's interesting to meet people who you know are human, that we share universal attributes, but then we have these local variations. We need to come back to that rather than battening down the hatches, I think, into either nation states or tribal identities that are based on what are ultimately superfluous and superficial differences, race, uh, class, mm. gender, things like this. And I think that is what, what was great about the period of the nineties. And this was hard fought was the, you know, the kind of victory of globalization of the idea that free trade. And this goes back to, and I, you know, I, I realize you might be cringing as a, as a commie, as a Marxist, but that <laughs> moment. Of, you know, where we, I think in the, in the 1990s and beyond, we, you know, we discovered that globalization and that trade among nations, both in ideas as well as goods and services and allowing people to move more freely around the globe because the Cold War was over and suddenly, you know, people who were trapped in Soviet republics could start moving around and people from the West could invest or travel to Bulgaria, you know, or whatever. Uh, as well as to the Southern Hemisphere, et cetera. And because of the end of colonization, you know, individuals had more freedom to decide where they wanted to live and what they wanted to do with their lives. This was a huge, you know, success. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. fucking great. Um, and then suddenly you have 
all sorts of weird, you know, wonderful things where you have African athletes, you know, representing Sweden in the Olympics <laughs> and doing well. And you have fusion, you know, Chinese Cuban fusion food in Jersey City. Uh, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's just, it's tremendous stuff. And I think that's what we need to valorize and we need to explore the ways that we get to something like that and how we can make that better and actually focus more simultaneously on universal values and universal kind of being citizens of the world, as well as also really uh, appreciating the individual differences that we all have. Um, to me, that's a way forward. And I think in many ways, this is as much a kind of, and here I'm just going to go totally Sartre and existentialist. It's almost a personal psychology where we have to shake off like um, the plague and the flies with a, with an act of mental imagination where we say, fuck it, like I'm not going to live in a world where I am afraid of you know being too close to a person and dying from mm. COVID. Uh, figuratively, we need to get back to a point where we recognize that we benefit when we interact with people all the time, especially people who are superficially different from us. You know, that to me is the the act of the next, you know, that's the fight of the next 20 years is how do we build back a, uh, you know, a belief in weathering, you know, fear um, for more important outcomes, which are that kind of community, that kind of empathy and autonomy that can define a really rich and flourishing globe. Nick Gillespie, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.